Welcome to Peak True Crime. The Pigeon Champion of Pinkton. The evening of Wednesday the 26th of April was just over eight weeks ago now. It was clear and dry. There was a light breeze in the air and with just an hour or so of daylight left, Nottinghamshire Police received a call from a member of the public. A construction worker who had been working on the edge of an arable field in Sutton in Ashfield that was being prepared for planting discovered what he suspected were human remains. What followed was a lengthy and thorough excavation of a site. Over a period of seven weeks, a small army of archaeologists, forensic pathologists, scene of crime investigators and police search officers scoured a large wooden area and a dusty, arable 11-acre field. A month later, on May 24th, Nottinghamshire Police Assistant Chief Constable Rob Griffin announced the launch of a murder investigation. The complete remains of an unknown man, thought to be aged between 40 and 60, were confirmed to have been discovered on the southern edge of Coxmoor Farm in Sutton in Ashfield, Nottinghamshire. The body, it was believed, had been in the ground for at least five years, but probably longer. And while the cause of death couldn't yet be accurately determined, preliminary pathology suggests that the man had not died of natural causes. So... Welcome to this slightly different style of episode of Big True Crime. Um, Normally, when I cover cases, they're scripted. There's more often than not a resolution. And while I tend to cover modern cases, sometimes we do delve into the past um, and explore historical ones. This episode, however, is a little different. About six, seven, eight weeks ago, I was just enjoying my morning cup of tea and doom scrolling through the news sites and social media when I came across a story. Police were searching a farmer's field in Sutton in Ashfield in the neighbouring county of Nottinghamshire. A member of public had discovered what he thought might be human remains. Regular listeners will know that the podcast is focused exclusively on Derbyshire and the Peak District, and though nearby, Sutton and Ashfield is not quite near enough. Now, Derbyshire is a pretty safe county. The Peaks are a massive tourist attraction, um, first national park in the country, no less. And while it's on the whole quite a quiet and peaceful place... 
there's unfortunately more than enough cases for one person on their own to cover. Sutton Ashfield might only be a mile over the border, but borders are there for a reason. Um, I'm aware that over the last few years, national borders have become something of a contentious topic in the UK, and I have no interest in going down that road. But rules is rules. Um, It's not my patch, so it's not a case that I'd be covering. That was until two weeks, two weeks ago, when Nottinghamshire Police announced that they had identified the remains, and lo, the man was from Derbyshire. He was last seen in Derbyshire, and it was at this point that the case fell slap bang in the middle of my patch. Um, a couple of listeners had got in touch and asked if I'd seen the update and whether I'd covered the story. The answers that I gave was yes, I had seen the news, and no, I wasn't going to cover it as it was in the early stages, and I didn't think that it would be appropriate. The reason I said that I didn't think it'd be appropriate is because, well, the recent case of Nicola Bully. Anyone with even the slightest interest in true crime will not only know how earlier this year, Nicola, uh, she was a 45-year-old mother of two from St Michael's on Wire in Lancashire, went missing after dropping her children at school. It was one of those cases that really caught the public's imagination and almost from the moment that the news broke, not only the traditional news media, but also true crime enthusiasts and social media influencers descended on her home village. Alongside insensitively prying into the lives of the family and friends they set about criticizing and undermining the police investigation they harassed residents and started speculating wildly as to the cause of the disappearance when her body was discovered three weeks later any suggestion that the intrusions or the innuendo would end. (laughs) They just proved to be very wide of the mark. If you follow me on social media, you might have seen some of my criticism of what I have at different times called parasites, ghouls, chancers, vampires, voyeurs, who for clicks and likes, and subsequent cash will spout unjustified and unnecessary and often unpleasant nonsense without a care for its impact. I don't like that sort of thing and I hope that if you've listened to any of my other episodes you'll know that's not the kind of thing that I produce. I believe that crime narratives should be dealt with sensitively. Um... Not only for the victims and the families, but without wanting to sound too highfalutin, for society as a whole. Uh, I think truthfulness and honesty and empathy are in such short supply at present. We've got a duty to put it 
front and centre of everything we do, whatever size of platform we have. I've argued plenty of times that true crime storytelling can be done and done well simply by approaching cases with truthfulness and honesty and, you know, more than a little bit of understanding. And now I want to demonstrate that. I want to demonstrate how in real time, without resorting to sensationalisation or cynicism, this can be done. I'm not the police. I am not an investigator. I don't intend to investigate the case, to develop my own theories or give platforms to theories or gossip that can't be stood up with a fair degree of actual and factual evidence. I'm going to tell you what we know at present, what can be uncovered from official documents, what I've discovered from first-hand sources, and provide some kind of context for all this. These episodes on this case are unlikely to be on any regular schedule, as um, I'm a firm believer that if you've got nothing to say, it's best to say nothing. And I'm going to keep producing the usual episodes, but occasionally if there is a break in the case or something occurs that's worth letting you know, one of these mini episodes will be dropped just to update you. Unlike the usual episodes, they won't be scripted. And the point of this strand, I suppose, of the podcast is to keep you updated on the case and as such little less formality will make that easier to do. I hope that's not going to undermine the production qualities, but really that's that's my job to worry about, so let me deal with that. So, um, without further ado, let me tell you what we know so far. Just before 7pm on the 26th of April this year, a construction worker who was working in a farmer's field discovered in a hole he was digging what he believed to be human remains. To the south of Coxmoor Road, between Sutton and Ashfield and Ravenshead in Nottingshire, the field, which was at the time being prepared to have its crop of, I think, cabbage or spinach or greens sowed. Uh, And it butts up against a tree line of a place called Little Normans Hill Wood. The woods are a mixture of conifer and quite immature oak. The forest runs from the field almost the entire length that remains of Coxmoor Road, which is for those locally interested, the B6139, right up until the junction of Kirby Road, which is about a kilometre in a southwesterly direction. 
the point in the field where the remains were found are almost 12 metres in from the road along the tree line and really only accessible through the woodland, certainly today. Because I can't say what the woodland, at the moment anyway, what the woodland was like 50 years ago. But today the ground is overgrown and quite difficult to navigate, except for a network of informal paths that have developed through it over time. The paths themselves, while they wind and weave between the trees, map a route from the site where the body was found to the car park. Um, and the car park's almost exactly the same distance of 12 metres from the roadway entrance to the parking spot as the 12 metres that the body was found. And I'd say that as a crow flies, it's probably about 250 metre walk from the line of trees to the car park. Does that make sense? I'll pop a map in the Peak True Crime Facebook group anyway. Um, maybe it made more sense to just do that in the first place and direct you there in the first place, but there we go. Um, with the call coming into Nottinghamshire Police's um, control centre in Hucknall, just before seven, uh, the police, it wasn't long before they were at the scene when a forensic tent was erected over the site. The field and the woodland were placed within a quite a large police cordon and Coxmoor Road was closed to all but emergency traffic. It wasn't then until a statement from Superintendent Claire Rupus of Nottinghamshire Police the following afternoon that any information became available to the public. Confirming the discovery of the human remains, Superintendent Rupus made it clear that this discovery was, to use her words, not ancient bones, and the police working with forensic scientists and an anthropologist would remain on site for probably the next seven days. Um, that seven days extended into 14, into 21. There'd be occasional updates or requests for public assistance when necessity dictated it. It was announced at some stage that the body was of a man aged between 40 and 60 and between 5 foot 4 and 5 foot 6 tall. As the remains were in a later stage of decomposition, um, there was only a skeleton remaining. It was considered that the body had laid in the ground for more than five years, but maybe longer. Um, not as your police at the time had a couple of nobody murders on their books um, but each of these were ruled out to be the victim back in 2004 47 year old Robin Barrow Spencer had gone missing after visiting his mum who lived in the area this was 
considered a murder by the police. So they made a number of arrests two years after he disappeared and the two men that were arrested were released without charge. Um, DNA was extracted from the skeleton found on Cooksmoor Road and this was matched against the DNA profile that they had of Robin um, and that proved to be negative. There was a notable unsolved case in the area that related to a robbery in a jeweller's in 2003. Marianne Bates, who's the owner of the jewellery shop, was shot during the raid by four men who came to her shop in Arnold, which is just 10 miles south of the site on Cooksmoor Road where the body was found. Three of the men were arrested and found guilty of involvement, but the gunman who was named as James Brody escaped. In the intervening 25 years, he's not been in touch with his family or friends. There's been no sightings of him. But given that he was 20 at the time of the robbery and the victim whose body the police had discovered was aged between 40 and 60, he was ruled out of contention. On Friday, the 19th, so that's 23 days after the discovery of the body on Cooksmoor Road, the road was reopened and the forest given back to the public and all the police work in the field had come to an end. By now, the police had made it known that the individual had most likely been beaten prior to death as there were a number of trauma injuries on the skeleton and while it couldn't be said conclusively that that was the cause of death as other tests were still ongoing it was believed that they were certainly a contributory factor to the crime that had that had obviously occurred from the depth at which the body was buried and the positioning of the body in the ground, the police suggested that this had indicated the field wasn't necessarily the location at which the victim had been killed and that significant effort had been gone into to bury the body so as it wouldn't be found. During the excavation of the site, several clothes were discovered. Um, it's not known at the moment exactly what clothes they were, but in the week leading up to the work being completed at the field, they released two images in a hope that what they showed might be familiar to members of the public. One was a single right shoe. Um, it's black or very dark brown, low cut, with, in the photograph, red sandstone earth the field still caked inside and out of it the laces have degraded over time and although the toes are 
curled of the shoe, its length suggested was possibly about a size five or six. The other image shows two socks. They're odd socks, but a similar size. One was black and ribbed, while the other was a tiny grey and white checker. And on its outer side, running from the ankle to the toe, was a distinctive double dotted line stitching. As he closed the press conference to announce the end of the police's work of the field, Assistant Chief Constable Rob Griffin, after inviting the public to come forward with any information, he reminded the press that it's important to remember this is not just a collection of bones in a field. This is someone's loved one whose family will have undoubtedly been waiting for him, waiting many years for answers. One such family were the Lowbridges of Annesley, a semi-rural village just four miles south of Sutton and Ashfield. Russell, who is uh, an emergency worker with St John's Ambulance, had no real memories of his granddad. He was only four when his granddad went missing but the story of his disappearance had haunted the family for decades. Watching the local television news that evening, something struck a chord. 56 years previous, his granddad had gone missing and never been found. Last seen a little over four miles from the field where the unknown remains were found, at five foot five, his granddad was well within the height parameters. There was something else though. Russell had a strange feeling about the pattern of the socks. Somehow familiar, in his mind he connected them with a man that he'd only really knew through family stories. His granddad Alfred. In 1967, the exact date is unknown yet, but I'll explain about that later. A coal miner, Alfred Swinscoe, was drinking in his local pub, the Miner's Arms, in Pinkston. He was a familiar face in the pub, and that night was in a group of friends, which included his son, Gary. At some time about 10.30 in the evening, Alfred handed Gary a 10 bob note. Um, I'll explain what that is later as well. To buy a round of drinks and said that he was just stepping outside for a minute to go and use the outside toilet. A slight sidebar, I suppose. It wasn't until 1971 and decimalisation 
that the pound in Britain had come to be made up of 100 pennies or 100 pence. In 1967, the currency was divided into pounds, shillings and pence. One pound was made up of 240 pence with 12 pence to the shilling and 20 shillings to the pound. Yeah, if you're still with me. A bob was the nickname for a shilling. So a 10 bob note was a 10 shilling note. Half a pound or as probably a more relevant comparison to the time, looking at old prices in pubs, it's probably the equivalent of five or six pints. The drinks were bought and Gary returned to the table and to their friends. And as far as we know, Gary was the last reported sighting of his 52-year-old father. This brief description is just about all that Russell Lowbridge knew of his granddad's disappearance. The location of the police's investigation was in the right sort of area and the height was almost spot on. The socks were certainly familiar for some reason that he couldn't explain. So for really no other reason to put these niggling thoughts to rest, Russell picked up the phone and called Nottinghamshire Police. As I mentioned, the unexpected disappearance of Alfred had cast a long shadow over the family. One which was still felt today. Russell's mum, Julie, who's 82 now, was a 25-year-old factory worker and at the time, and one of six children that was left behind. Perhaps the most affected of her siblings was Russell's uncle, Gary. Gary had been in the pub with Alfred that night. He'd been the son he'd given the tempod note to in order to get a round of drinks. Speaking to the press, Russell, who was particularly close to his uncle Gary, explained that it completely broke him, never knowing what happened to his dad. Julie, Alfred's daughter and Russell's mum, spoke of coming home one day from work and people saying that they couldn't find Dad. He'd gone missing and the police were searching. We all thought it was very mysterious, but we thought he'd turn up. It does make you wonder how he did cope all those years ago, because he was always stayed with us as a family. Where did Dad go? Nottinghamshire police were inundated with calls through the evening and across into the next day after the appeal for information regarding the crumpled shoe and the distinctive odd socks. Some would have been well-meaning, but erroneous. A few would probably have been malicious and misleading. But one, the St John's ambulance worker, Russell Lowbridge, proved absolutely critical. DNA testing was the next step. 
towards what would be confirmation that the body that was found on the 26th of April in Sutton and Ashfield was that of Alfred Swinsco, Russell's granddad and Judy's dad. So, what do we know about Alfred? Well, he was born on the 3rd of September, 1912. Like his dad before him, he was a miner. And he started at Langton Pit in Pinkton at the age of 14. By 1967, he was a cutter, working... At the literal coal face, he was responsible for cutting the coal from the solid deposits underground. Mining was the largest industry in Pinkton in 1967. In fact, the town was almost entirely dependent on coal and and had been since the first commercial mines were opened up in the 1800s. As someone who'd been working in the pit for, well, over 40 years, Alfred was well known amongst his fellow miners, but also in the broader community. He was just a familiar face. And his nickname was Sparrow, because Alfred was a pigeon fancier. Now, pigeon fancying, or more accurately, pigeon keeping, was a hugely popular hobby among working class communities across England in the 60s and 70s, from breeding to showing to racing. Thousands of men, I mean, and it was almost exclusively men, were involved in a pastime. And from a young age, Alfred was too. His reputation in the area for his birds was so weighty that it led him to being called the pigeon champion of Pinkston. And it was a passion he shared with Gary, his son, who in turn passed that on to his grandson, Russell. Gary and Russell's mum, June Lee, weren't the only people whose lives were affected by the disappearance of Alfred. As I said before, in total, he and his wife had six children. The day after he walked out of the door of the miners' arms, Caroline, his wife, reported a missing to the police. It's also said that the family reported Alfred missing again a second time to the police. Um, I can only put it as vaguely as that because at present, Nottinghamshire police aren't able to find any record of that. In fact, they aren't able to find, as of yet, any records of the investigation into the disappearance of Alfred. When I mentioned before that the exact date that Alfred went missing wasn't known, it's because somewhere in the archives at Nottinghamshire Police there sits a file, and in there will be details of what the police in Pinkston did in 1967 to locate Alfred. 
who they spoke to, where they went, statements from family and friends, what their suspicions were at the time. Unfortunately, though, in the week since Alfred has been identified, nobody has been able to find it. Now, given that time, so much time's elapsed and hundreds and thousands of investigations have taken place since, it's probably not that surprising that a paperwork file has gone astray. And while Assistant Chief Constable Rob Griffin is keen to reassure the public that there is plenty of investigatory options still to pursue without it, it seems obvious that that file represents a hugely valuable contemporaneous insight. I'm sure if they haven't found it already, there's some poor archive assistant trawling through every dusty cupboard and cabinet, uh, their quarry, the file with the name Alfred Swinscoe scrawled on the front. As we're discussing police records, it would be remiss of me not to mention that over the course of his life, Alfred had, on occasion, come to the attention of the police, I believe the euphemism is. Uh, Local newspaper archives note three occasions when he was brought before the magistrate, and on each occasion for minor public order offences. And on each occasion, they were settled through the issuing of a fine. The charges are for cruelty to a cat, public nuisance, and assaulting a police officer. Now, in stark terms like that, it paints a somewhat dark picture of Alfred, but I beg you to take a second and listen to the context, because I think in doing so, you'll have a very different opinion. The cruelty to a cat charge referred to an incident in which it was said at the age of 22, Alfred had thrown stones at a cat. At court, he admitted to throwing stones, but in mitigation explained that he hadn't thrown stones at a cat, but had thrown stones near a cat that had been stalking his pigeons. Now, for a man who in later life would be known as the Pigeon Champion of Pinkston, a charge that on first glance appears one step short of animal torture does take on a slightly different interpretation, I think. The public order charge, just a couple of years later, which you would probably assume was for a fight in the street after a night in the pub, was in fact Alfred and some friends playing football in the street in the middle of the day. And without wishing to cast aspersions, the constable who brought the charges was somewhat coincidentally the same one who pursued him for what the Derbyshire Times at the time called the Cat and Pigeons case. I think at this point, like I say, I think I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions. Now, even the third and most serious charge of assaulting a police officer, which significantly only saw a financial penalty issued, comes across as more comical than malicious. Four years before his disappearance, at the age of 50, the Derby Evening Telegraph reports that while drunk on the street, Alfred committed an indecent act. 
seen by a police officer, a constable Hunt. Alfred remonstrated with the constable that he'd been standing there watching me. As Hunt tried to detain Alfred, the drunk 50-year-old is said to have punched him in the face. Now, I mentioned the word context before, and while the phrase indecent act conjures up all manner of sexual depravity, the reality is that for the most part at the time, it was simply a legal euphemism for public urination. A lot has changed in Pinkston since 1967. The mines are gone, obviously. There's the odd nod to the industry that once dominated the town in the form of public installations, I guess you'd call them a one type of another. There's the town's mine wheel. There's the recreation of a mining hook, which was a safety device that was designed in Pinkton in the 1850s and then used all over the world. There's even a pit truck that was used to cart the coal along railway lines inside the mines with a enormous pit sign on it. So it's part of the fabric of the town still and something that's very, very obvious. The miners' arms, the pub, has gone. Um, and although the building still exists, it's now converted to just residential accommodation. The mines themselves, they're closed and capped and have been kind of replaced by this big vast industrial estate and the very street that Alfred lived on with Caroline and his kids uh, Kirkstrud Row is no more at all the name doesn't even exist anymore and where it was they are contemporary semi-detached family homes that have gone to replace the lines and lines of of back-to-back terraces As of today, the last week of June in 2023, that's all there is to tell you about the state of the police investigation into the murder of Alfred. Behind the scenes, work will be ongoing to identify and interview as many people as knew him as they can. Some bone fragments are undergoing some more advanced forensic analysis. What possible genetic material might they be able to uncover from clothes the ones that have laid untouched but beneath a meter of sandstone earth in the field in southern Asheville for half a century and presumably they're still looking for the file into the original investigation into Alfred's disappearance These are just some of the unknowns that surround the murder of Alfred Swinscoe. And like I said at the start, I don't intend this podcast to be some sort of famous five ragtag amateur investigation. Nottinghamshire police are in a far better position to do that. And I in no way want to interfere or detract from what they're doing from an investigation which 
I'm sure is challenging enough. Instead though, through occasional episodes around this case, I want to keep you updated on its status, uh, let you know any progress that's being made and take some time to explore and share things relevant to Alfred and his life. I hope to chat to historians and ex-miners about what life was like down the pit, um, what exactly a cutter was. I'll try to get a better and more meaningful understanding of what Pinkston was like in 1967, the year for Derbyshire football fans of great significance, as it was the year that Brian Clough and Peter Taylor joined Derby County, but that's a side issue. I'll maybe talk to some pigeon fanciers and find out what separates a good fancier from a great one. Uh, There's even a chance I'll dig deeper into what, as far as I can see, is the fascinating history of the 10 Bob Notes. All of this, for me, is focused on one central purpose. To share Alfred's case with as wide a number of people as possible and keep it in the only way I really have, in the public eye. Someone, somewhere has a piece of information that will unlock this case. That will provide some solace for Alfred's family. Russell put it ever so well. Speaking to the press, he said, Whoever did this robbed generations of a grandfather, a great-grandfather, and left six children without a father. Two of those children are no longer here. This has been a mystery that has haunted our family for decades never goes away and it never provides answers if you can in any way help detectives to find those answers for russell and his family please call nottingham police on 0800 096 0095 that's 0800 096 0095 however insignificant it might seem to you that could be the thought that unlocks a memory somewhere else that develops a lead somewhere else which provides the answer to who killed Alfred Swinscoe the pigeon champion of Pinkston Thank you.